The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 20th day of February in 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is ready across the way, and I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Glad you could be with us. We have tonight uh, the great Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Will, will join us tonight. Then we will welcome in singer-guitarist. He fronts his own band. We'll change gears and welcome in Julian Frampton. And yes, he is of that Frampton family, so you can be advised of that. So sit back, relax, get comfy, enjoy the show tonight on GBB. As always, we've got some great people, some great good sports talk and sports memories up ahead. Just want to remind you, we are on social media. And you can find us on Facebook. It's called WGBB Sports Talk New York. How clever is that, folks? You can find so much information there. So stop by, give us a look. Then you can give us a like. You can also follow us. We're on LinkedIn. We're also on Twitter, at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter, at B. Donahue. WGBB, and if you miss a show, don't worry, because they're all cataloged out on the website, and you can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he's the author of 283 big league, big league wins. He's a three-time 20-game winner, a three-time All-Star, a world champion with the 82 cards, and 16-time Gold Glove winner. He was recently elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame up in Cooperstown and will be inducted this July 24th. Hopefully we will have that induction ceremony this year. We're missing it after two years off. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Jim Cott. Jim, good evening. Evening, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us, Jim. Now, you were growing up in Michigan. Did you have any favorite teams back then, any uh any favorite players, sports heroes? Oh, I sure did. Actually, my favorite team was the same favorite team of my dad's, and that was Philadelphia Athletics. Wow, okay. It was his favorite team because he was a uh, an admirer of Connie Mack, who, you know, owned the team, managed the team, and mm-hmm. uh, they would they would be strapped every year to meet payroll, so they had to get rid of a lot of their good players. So he always kind of pulled for the underdog. His his favorite was Lefty Grove, and my boyhood hero, who I'm hoping can be at my induction this summer, is Bobby Shantz. Bobby's uh, 96. He was the American League MVP in 1952. He's the pitcher that I sort of patterned and inspired me to learn to field my position, so he was my boyhood hero. A great athletic he was. Yeah, also pitched for the Yankees. I, I remember Bobby Shantz. Now, on July 24th, 63, Jim, you threw a complete game shutout, and you also hit a home run for the Twins. That wasn't done too often back then. Wow, I didn't know it was that uh, that particular day. Uh, when we would lose a close game, 
Uh, we'd be walking up the tunnel in the old Mets stadium in Minneapolis, and Harmon Killebrew would look at me and say, you know how to stop this, losing these close ones. He said, shut them out and hit one out. <laughs> and that, yeah. was, uh, that was always kind of a dream of every pitcher. And if that was the game I remember, I think it was off Dick Donovan in Cleveland. Uh, but that was, I think I, I was fortunate to do that a few times. But, the, yeah, that was always a goal of a pitcher to, Pitch a shutout and hit a home run. Yeah, you did that twice, Jim, and it's it's funny you note that. I just realized that that it took place July twenty fourth, which is the uh, the date of the induction ceremony up in Cooperstown this summer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I remember those things uh, better than I do things that might have happened yesterday. Yeah, I agree with you, Jim. Yeah, my wife's always saying, <laughs> if you could remember important things and forget the, the bits yeah. of meaningless information that you have in your brain, we could be millionaires. Yeah. You realize that? <laughs> right. Well, she doesn't realize how important that information is to us. It certainly is, Jim. That's correct. <laughs> I'm glad she's listening in. She can hear this now, too. So there you go, hon. Now, uh, on July 23rd, in 64, you gave up two home runs to Campy, and that was his major league debut. So does he, when you see Bert, does he ever bring that up to you? You know, he, he's such a shy, uh, individual. I, yeah, I he know is. deep down in he would, but, uh, I remember he, he got off a plane, I believe, about five in the morning from wherever Oakland's, uh, triple A team was, and I, we didn't have advanced scouting reports on guys like that. It was just kind of, hey, did anybody play against him? And, and Zoilo Versailles and, uh, uh, Zoilo Versailles said to me, nah, he doesn't have a lot of power. You know, he was a little guy, <laughs> so you didn't expect him to have power. But of course, Old Met Stadium was a pretty comfortable target for right-hand hitters if they got the ball in the air. So he, uh, yeah, he hit two two-run homers. I think the only, uh, gratification I got out of that. I think, if I remember right, that we we may have won that game. So you got the last laugh. Yeah, is, I'm, I'm not sure. I think, I think we came back and I think we won that game. I'm not sure, but I certainly remember Campy hitting uh, two two-run homers, and uh, I heard about that often. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now the '65 Twins ball club. That was a special team. You mentioned a couple of the names already, and I w- I was watching the MLB channel the other morning. They were rerunning the highlights of the World Series against the Dodgers. That was a tremendous World Series. It was. You know, we were we were just happy to be there. I don't think. I mean, it's not that we weren't. Trying. I don't know if we were focused quite as much. That's what happens when you're in the World Series for the first time. There's so many outside distraction, taking care of people, getting tickets, et cetera. But I, I think, uh, you know, we won those first two games and then ran into Koufax, uh, you know, for the next two of the next five, and they shut us out in a few. So uh, certainly we had a team that we thought would be back uh, more than just that once. But it was a... It was a thrill for us coming from what was always known as a last-place team in Washington, and then we became the Minnesota Twins, and then getting to the World Series in 65. And You know, Harmon had developed into the premier home run hitter. Uh, Tony Oliva came up as a batting champion, rookie of the year the year before. Uh, Zoilo Versailles was an MVP. Uh, you know, he did things at shortstop that year that very few shortstops had done, and Mudcat had a big year, so we all... 
we all kind of came together in '65, uh, but we couldn't get past Mr. Koufax. No, that was that, that was a buzzsaw that you ran into right there, Jim. That's for sure. That he was in his prime, and he was just mowing people down. And that's what Sandy Koufax did. And if you ever get a chance, folks, to look at those highlights from that particular World Series, please uh, treat yourself because it it is tremendous to see. And uh, we'll talk about '67 a little bit, Jim. Now, that was a letdown, a good pennant race in the American League, but you ended up losing that one to the uh, Impossible Dream Red Sox. Yeah, that was perhaps the the last, you know, probably the best pennant race uh, ever because of four teams having a chance to win uh, into the last week of the season, and they didn't have playoffs then, so... You either won the pennant or you went home. And mm-hmm. the White Sox got knocked out on Tuesday, but going to the last weekend, Detroit, the Red Sox, and, and the Twins still had a chance. That was probably uh, the best month of pitching that I'd ever had in my career. It still is to this date. But I was making my eighth start on that Saturday afternoon, eighth start of the month, and uh, popped my elbow in the, I think it was the third inning, maybe the fourth inning, and uh, Hawk Harrelson uh and Yaz remind me, you know, they, they, they pump me up nice. They say, if you didn't hurt your arm, we don't know if we'd have won that. But I tell my Boston friends I take great satisfaction in uh, helping form Red Sox Nation because that's yeah. the year that, you know, the Red Sox only drew about 14,000 people on opening day that year. And then all of a sudden Yaz caught fire middle of the year. He had one of the great Septembers ever. And uh, my friend Jim Lonborg, who later became my teammate in Philadelphia, uh, won the Cy Young Award. And uh, so it was quite a magical story for the Red Sox, but certainly a letdown for us. Right. Dick Williams really did a tremendous job in turning that ball club around, as you said. Uh, nobody really predicted Boston to be near as good as they were that year. And uh, as we mentioned come up against the cards in that world series and uh they of course did did not see the impossible dream through to fruition and as you ran into Koufax, they ran into a guy by the name of bob gibson and and that was the story right, right there now, now you almost won the cy young there uh, people may not remember and you kids out there Originally, there was only one Cy Young Award for both leagues, and you you lost out to to Koufax. I believe it was '66, right, Jim? Yeah, that was the last year. I think because Sandy was pretty well dominating it. Uh, my teammate Mudcat Grant had a terrific year in '65, and I think maybe uh, Mel Stottlemyre or White in '64 somebody had a. A big year, but Koufax uh, or Gibby were winning it every year. So uh, in '67, and I often mentioned that to my friend Jim Lonborg. I said, you know, I helped persuade them to give two awards for starting in '67. Of course, Lonnie won it in the American League, and mm-hmm. uh, Gibby won it in the National League. Now you you became a relief pitcher. Uh, when was that, Jim? When you went to Philadelphia? Well, I um, I was kind of a forgotten pitcher in philadelphia that last year i mean they only used me in dire uh, circumstances i really wasn't pitching very well they had a couple young pitchers coming up so 76 was really my last complete you know year as as a full-time starter as a starter yeah. and then uh, 
when the when the Yankees bought me in '79, just as a little stopgap for their bullpen as a lefty, I began pitching out of the bullpen, and uh, that really paid off because in 1982, uh, Whitey Herzog, who was managing the Cardinals, he said, "I want you to be my left hand specialist. I'm going to build my." staff from the ninth inning back i just saw whitey and a lot of my teammates in st louis earlier this week uh celebrating the 82 world series championship so those last few years i was just uh a lefty on lefty guy and uh i really enjoyed it yeah did you enjoy relieving more than starting though jim no i i, I didn't enjoy uh relieving as much as starting to begin with but uh it did have some advantages in that every day you came to the ballpark, you thought you thought you might get in for mm-hmm. a few hitters, and when you when you got a couple hitters out and you won the game, you really felt you know like you did something, but uh, to to contribute to the team. But no, I'd have to say I, I wish that I would have continued starting, and I think I could. I had started uh, I started fourteen games in eighty one, and almost half of them were complete games, and that's why I thought I would. I would continue to be able to start, but when Whitey presented me with the opportunity to to be that lefty specialist, and uh, he thought that was going to be the best for our team, I said, "Good, let's do it." And uh, of course, it paid off because we won the World Series that year. Right, a great ball club indeed. That '82 Cardinal ball club under the white Whitey Herzog. We're speaking with Jim Cott tonight on the program, the new Hall of Famer. Now, 16 consecutive gold gloves, Jim. It's hard to argue with that. It's since been eclipsed, though, by uh, Greg Maddox, who, who's a tremendous pitcher in his own right. To what do you attribute your great fielding, your position, uh, at Kamin? Well, I went back to what we talked about earlier. Uh, I actually sound strange, but I, I learned how to feel my position by listening to the radio. So, uh, you know, baseball in the, in the late 40s, early 50s, we didn't have our first TV set then. But, uh, when Bobby Shantz pitched against the White Sox and I listened to their games on Sunday afternoons, everybody played a doubleheader and the announcer would say, well, here's uh, Bobby Shantz pitching for the A's, best fielding pitcher in baseball. He lands on the balls of his feet. He's ready to go left or right, always in position for a ball hit back to him. And I would go in my backyard with a tennis ball and bounce it off the garage and make believe I was Bobby Shantz. And, uh, in 1958, my first spring training, we go through pitcher's drills and the coach said, Hey kid, you look just like Bobby Shantz. Uh, the, the, uh, it's kind of the funny part about it is Bobby was five six and I'm six five. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I remember telling Greg, uh, I, I happened to, uh, uh, I happened to, uh, be out in San Diego when he was pitching with the Padres and I was on the field and I said you're going to break my gold glove record but I have another one for you to shoot at and that's the oldest pitcher to steal a base so I was like <laughs> I want to say 41 years seven months and he broke that one that year too <laughs> so, amazing but yeah. <laughs> you know the 16 consecutive gold gloves they they really do it a lot more scientifically today and they they look at uh, some of the metrics but uh, you know once as a full-time starter and you pitch a lot of innings and you get that award, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to get it year, year after year. But I, I did take a lot of pride in my fielding. Uh, I always felt if, uh, you know, if I could help myself in the field and at the bat, uh, and I was better at doing that than my opposing pitcher, 
uh, that would give me a nice advantage going into the game. Give you a better chance to win, Jim. You're exactly correct. Now, here's another stat to, to, uh, to note, folks. In 1983, Jim became the last major league player to have played in the 50s and the last player for the original Washington Senators. As, as we mentioned, I think we did earlier, the Washington Senators moved on to Minnesota and became the twins. Some, uh, I believe I have in my archives somewhere a nice signed photo of Harmon in his Washington Senator uniform. And that, that, that's a nice prize. I like to get, uh, pictures of the guys in, uh, out of the ordinary poses and uniforms. And, and that certainly fit in. Now, you, you're also one of 29 players in baseball history. To, def- to appear in four decades, Jim. Now, that, that's longe- longevity. Uh, uh, J- I equate it, uh, lately, currently to Jamie Moyer in that respect. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a few of us lefties. You know, if you can throw strikes and get out to the mound regularly, you could pitch for a long time. But, uh, you know, I have a few of those records that aren't really records of achievement, but they're records just of distinction, as you exactly. mentioned. Uh, yeah. You know, you come up in the late 50s and you pitch to the early 90s and or the early 80s, and so you pitched in four decades, but it, it makes it sound like you played for 40 years, which <laughs> I wish I would have, but uh, you make a good uh, analogy there with Jamie Moyer because I think Jamie actually won a game when he was 50. Yeah, he was up there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another Philly, yeah. too. Yeah. That's true, Jim. I'll have to look that one up. Well, upon your retirement, you, uh, you served as Cincinnati Reds pitching coach. Now, what influenced you to become a coach, uh, Jim? Anybody, uh, throughout your career that, that you met that really, uh, taught you the, uh, what things you needed to be a successful coach? Well, I learned a lot from Eddie Lopat and Johnny Sane. Ah, okay. Uh, New York fans will remember they both played for the Yankees back Great in names. the fifties, yeah. and and they really I liked what they helped me with as a coach. So the coaching position really came because of one reason, and that was Pete Rose. Uh, when Pete made a, a ground out, he'd like to run over the mound and make the pitcher move out of his way, <laughs> just kind of a way to try to intimidate him and. Uh, so I would see Pete coming out of the corner of my eye, and I would move in his way, and I would make him go around. <laughs> and so one day he went to Henry King, uh, the the batting practice pitcher, and said for Henry to come over and tell me if he ever got a managing job, he wanted me to be his pitching coach. So when Pete got the call in, uh, I think it was August of 1984, he went to the Reds as playing manager, and uh, so I got a call and went in there to be his uh his pitching coach for a year and a half. I, I loved. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was actually you put more time into doing that than you do as a player, and uh, it was before the big money era that we have today. So you really didn't make much money as a coach. And I had an opportunity to go into uh, uh, broadcasting in 1986. So I just did that for a year and a half, but I really enjoyed it. You will find Pete this summer in Cooperstown, Jim. I doubt you'll be able oh, to you'll be you won't be able to walk down the street being six foot five and uh, also now a new Hall of Famer. But he can be found in a store called Safe at Home because I go visit him every summer. He's up there, and he's signing oh, yeah. away, and uh, he's doing very well for himself. 
Yeah, I talk to Pete every now and then. He's an example of uh, how analytics has changed the game because I uh, uh, and the stopwatch and the radar gun. Because uh, when I I mentioned this to him, I think several years ago in one of our conversations, and I said, you know, if you went to a tryout camp today, they'd send you home the first day. I said, you didn't have any power, you couldn't run, you didn't have a strong arm, you didn't have any range. And all the uh, analytics scientist viewpoint, they'd say, well, this guy can't play baseball. So, yeah, he'd never get uh, drafted, was, yeah. Right, yeah. So uh, that would be hard today for the uh, for the analytics guys to put a number on him and, and, and be able to say, yeah, this guy's going to be one of the great hitters. No, he, he wouldn't get that chance today, unfortunately. Very good point, Jim. We're speaking with Jim Cott tonight on the program. Now, along with going into Cooperstown, the week before, you're having your number retired by the Twins. So the, it, it's really uh, a, a big week for you. Yeah, it's a big season, really. I uh, I mean, I'm humbled by it. it uh, the Twins have just been unbelievable in, uh, with Tony and myself going, going in, and it's... Uh, it, yeah, the best way I can put it, it's just been a humbling uh, honor for me. Uh, I think often of Charlie Sad, the crusty old trainer we had with the White Sox, and when the Twins put me on waivers and the White Sox picked me up and many thought my career might be over, then I, I remember I pitched a winning game and he had a few writers around the locker. Charlie stuck his head in and he said, Hey, Cott. If you're that good, how come Minnesota got rid of you? <laughs> so that kept me pretty humble. But I, I think with the, um, you know, the the number ceremony and and the uh, and the Hall of Fame, and and I'll I'll tell you how what a fine line there is. The Veterans Committee, there's ten players, former players on the ballot, and the uh, committee can vote for four. Well, this year there were five of us that were getting uh, quite a bit of support the fifth being Dick Allen. And on Monday morning, the day after I got my call uh, telling me that I was going into the Hall of Fame, I got a call from Willa Allen, Dick's widow. Mm-hmm. And Dick and I, of course, were very close friends and great teammates together in Chicago and one year in Philadelphia. And she said, Dick would be so happy, you know, he was one of your favorite pitchers to play behind. And I told Willa how happy I was playing with Dick. And then I said, reality I got 12 of the 16 votes. That's how many you need, 75%. Dick got 11. I said, if one of those voters was coming down to picking either Dick or myself and they decided to pick Dick, I would be calling Willa instead of Willa calling me. So, you know, that's how fine the line is. And I'm just uh, very grateful that after, I guess it was four times I've been on that veterans uh committee that I had guys there that I played with and against and executives and media people that had actually seen me play and uh, you know to get your career validated by them is uh, is a nice honor certainly is Jim and uh, I've had Tony on the program what a great man and what a, what a, as you say a very humble man Tony Oliva great great hitter and he finally got his due one guy that uh, as a Met fan that I'm so happy finally went in after years of waiting is Gil Hodges and uh, I don't yeah, know if, no if you knew Gil we all are yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I know there was uh, talk in the old days with, with the original Veterans Committee that there were too many Brooklyn Dodgers in the Hall of Fame already I don't see how that was in any any uh, 
circumstance to to worry about because uh, Gil is a Hall of Famer in my book, and I'm I'm awful happy that we're going to hear Gil Jr. Uh, speak about him uh, along with you guys up on the stage on the 24th. Now, I want to talk, Jim, a little bit about your broadcasting career. Now, uh, with the Yankees, you called around 100 games in your first uh, year round. The, the Yankees replaced uh, you with Billy Martin. I don't remember that, but the, what the interesting thought uh, about that was, he was purposely brought in to second-guess Lou Pinella. Is that true? <laughs> oh, I don't think he was brought in purposely to do that. I, I was quite flattered when I got the uh, call in 86, and uh, Don Carney, who was a producer for WPIX, had heard me do some rain delay interviews, and, and uh, he didn't even need a demo tape. He just said, I want you to come in, and, and I was going to take Frank Messer's place, which I did. I worked a year with Bill White and Scooter, which was a great experience. I talked to Bill the other day. just turned 88. I consider him my broadcast mentor. He taught me a lot about the business that first year. But he made a good point. He said, now, you're probably only going to last a year because he said, you're not a real Yankee. And George is going to send down notes for you to mention over the air about the umpires or different things that he's concerned of. And he said, you need to wad them up and throw them in the trash because you cannot sacrifice or compromise your credibility. And so that's what I did, and Bill was right. And uh, I wasn't a true Yankee, and so after that first year, Billy was no longer mar- uh, managing, so George brought him in, I don't think specifically, to second-guess Lou, he just had Billy there because he needed a parking place for him. I think he was uh, uh, paying him anyway. Uh, Billy, actually, I, I interviewed Billy a little bit on a few of the post-game shows uh, that he came in, in in 1986. But, you know, it was disappointing, but it all worked out. I ended up doing the Twins games for six years and then, of course, got the Yankee job in 1995, which is the the plum job of local broadcasters, so it all worked out fine. I always remember, I grew up with that booth, Jim, of Frank Messer, and uh, it was Jerry Coleman then when I was a kid. Jerry Coleman, Frank oh, Messer, yeah. and the Scooter. And uh, then right. Bill White came in, and he played off the, the Scooter as a straight man, and it was uh, really something to listen to. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. yeah. I had some, <laughs> some great Scooter stories for that yeah. year, which... Uh, was very entertaining. He had to get home to Cora as fast as he could. That, that's for sure. We remember that. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask you a tough one, Jim. Who would you consider your best teammate throughout your long career? You know, I, I've been asked that before. I really mm-hmm. I don't think that I could pick one. You know, I think Bob Costas, my broadcast partner, has uh, the exact number. I think I had 500 and some different teammates. And, oh, boy, yeah. Um, there were very few that I didn't have, you know, really good relationships with. Obviously, you get closer to some than others, but, uh, uh, you know, just some of my favorite players to play with and to be teammates with, I've mentioned already, you know, it started with Harmon and uh, Tony Oliva, and then when I played with uh, Dick in Chicago and Philadelphia, I think for those three years, those were some of the best uh, ability teams that, uh, ability-wise that I was ever on. I still have, you know, great relationships with Tim McCarver and, and Mike Schmidt and Larry Christensen and Steve Carlton. 
Uh, and then with the Yankees, I had already been teammates with uh, Goose and Bucky and uh, Greg Nettles, so I fit right in there. And then with the Cardinals, I became very close to uh, to Bruce Souter. But that whole team, I mentioned the other night in, in uh, St. Louis at the event we had with Ozzie Smith, and I said, uh, I'm a twin. I've been in the Twins organization 16 years, going in the Hall of Fame as a twin, and I, I'm happy to do that. But my most exciting and historic season was being a member of the 1982 Cardinals when we won the World Series, hitting 67 home runs as a team. I mean, people today just couldn't fathom how you could have a winning team doing that. But that was such an exciting team to be on, and it was my last full season. And I I ended up getting a World Series ring, and that actually is another one of those records of distinction. Uh, It's the longest any professional player has had to wait on any professional team to get a championship ring 24 seasons so wow. that's why i'm yeah. very grateful to be a member of that team yeah that there's another special folks floating around on the mlb network about the the 82 cardinals it's narrated by cardinal fan extraordinaire john goodman and has uh jim uh john ham uh from madmen uh in interviewed inside of it and it really is a a tremendous watch another uh, piece of quality programming from uh the mlb channel and jim i tell you it's been a real pleasure speaking with you you're a gentleman i thank you for taking the time out of your sunday night to spend some of it with us back up here in new york thanks bill i enjoyed being with you and we will see you uh, in cooperstown this summer hopefully it's not going to rain hopefully we will be all together on the 24th I look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks again, Jim. That's Jim Cott, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll talk with Julian Frampton. So stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. The lockout of Major League Baseball players by Major League Baseball owners still continuing, showing no signs of breaking their impasse. One thing to look forward to, folks, and uh, a sign of a bit of promises, they will be meeting every day this week in hopes of uh, coming to an agreement. Of course, both sides painting pictures of themselves as uh, the white knight, righteous in their cause, but all I know is uh, the spring training games have been pushed back, 
and uh, no one seems to care about the money-making source, which is us, the fans. They prefer to worship at the altar of Benjamin Franklin, and that is the money. But we'll always have what uh, I try to bring to you every week, sports talk, sports memory. Sometimes we bring you a refreshing non-sports guest from the world of entertainment, and that's where we're going tonight, folks. We'll continue right now with our next guest. He fronts his own band. He's... uh, the uh, front man of the Julian Frampton Band, based it's an L.A.-based alternative rock band, uh, still flying high from their recent arena amphitheater opening tour. And yes, folks, that you're wondering, he is uh, from that Frampton family. It's great to welcome to the show Julian Frampton. Julian, good evening. Good evening, Bill. How you doing? Thanks for having me, man. Great, great, great to have you, Julian. Now, in, in order to uh, justify myself here, Let's let's ask you right off the bat. Are you a sports fan? I am a sports fan. More more particularly, I'm a big Lakers and NBA fan. I garnered that from looking at the website and checking out some of your fi- your pictures. Uh, I unfortunately haven't watched the NBA in years. The game has changed so much. I remember the Showtime Lakers with Pat Riley back in in the '80s and '90s. I remember the, the Lakers and the Knicks. When I was a kid, listening on the transistor radio, if you know what that is. Anybody, well, I Brian? Do. What? <laughs> I can't believe you haven't watched the NBA in that long. No, yeah, it, the game, the game's changed, Julian. It, it's, it's, uh, it's more like playground now. And, and I, you know, I've seen that. I'm used to that. But the the old Lakers with Jerry West and Will Chamberlain, uh, just a different style of ball. And, uh, yeah, it, it is, but I, I think I just have such a love for the game because yeah, um, I'm thir- I'll be 34 next month. So for me, I grew up and my idol was Michael Jordan as a kid, you right? Know, Space Jam and the yeah. Bulls, you know, three-peating with Rodman the second half of that. So that was kind of my love of basketball came from Michael Jordan, and I've just been I've been stuck ever since. And then of course I got lucky enough to be a Lakers fan and fall in love all over again with Kobe Bryant. So. Well, what I tell the the younger folks, Julian, is that Dr. J was doing the operating way before Michael. <laughs> and I, oh, I give yeah. them a little history. Oh, yeah. Julius Irving was was Michael Jordan to me, and uh, he, he was he was doing those moves before Michael. I, I don't know. It would be an interesting one on one with those two guys. But uh, give me Dr. J, and and uh, that's who I'll take in that now. Let let me get right right to you here. You were born in L.A. You grew up in Miami, and you spent yeah, some time up I, here in New the, York. Go ahead. The Pat Riley I know uh, coached the Heat. The Heat, right? <laughs> With Alonzo Mourning and uh, yeah. Hardaway. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. They Jamal used, Mashburn. The, the, they know, used to have some dog fights with the Knicks. I remember that playoff series. Ooh, yeah. I forget. Oh my P- God! Went with Starks and everything. Yeah, oh, yeah. PJ Brown ended up taking Charlie Ward and, and doing like a, a flip. Took him and flipped oh, yeah. him right over. Oh boy! <laughs> so you you're so you're lying. You have been watching. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll watch it once in a while, Julie. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> now you spent some time here too in New York. Yeah, I actually went to, uh, well, half of my family's from the Bronx. Okay. Um, on my mother's side. Um, and then I went to, uh, SUNY Purchase for a little bit before I came out to LA. Ah, boy, okay. Yeah, SUNY Purchase. And you ended yeah, so up. I'm a big fan of New York. Yeah, you ended up back, back in LA. And, uh, you started out on drums. 
I did. I've, I've been playing drums since I was uh, eight, actually, um, and I was lucky enough, actually. I love this story just because I'm super proud of it. When my, my father was with uh, Ringo and the All-Star Band in 96, and I called my dad that year and was like, I really want to start playing drums. Mm-hmm. So he got Ringo to hook me up with a kit, and wow. that was my first drum kit ever, and I still have it, man. Nice. It's an incredible story. Is it a Ludwig? No, it's a, it should have been. It was a it was a bright red CD drums, you know, yeah. starter kit. But I'll I'll hold on to that and cherish that for. There me. you go. That's a, that's a wonderful keepsake, Julian. Yeah, it sure oh, is. Yeah. Now now, who started you on guitar? I started me on guitar. Funny enough, ah, I mean, okay. a lot of people think that my father taught me guitar, which you would, you know, one might assume that's mm-hmm. a, that would be a normal assumption. That's what um, I would guess. But I kind of wanted yeah. to shy away from playing guitar because I didn't want to really be in his shadow. But then uh, it was, it's a lot more difficult to write a song on drums than it is playing chords. Yes. So I picked it up at the end of high school and, and I just realized, okay, maybe this is something I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and when did you start to write? I, I was I've been writing since since high school. I used to write in math class in particular. I don't know why. I just <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. wouldn't pay attention to the math. <laughs> no, you're never going to use it anyway, so don't worry about no, it. No, I'm yeah. not. I'm not. I haven't yet. I haven't yeah. used algebra in many ways. So. Al- algebra to me is a mule in the old little rascals uh, episode. That, that's as far <laughs> as I got. Actually, the, when I took algebra, Julian, they stole the math nine regents that year here in New York. <laughs> And I didn't really? have to, yeah, I got out of the final that year. Oh my God. I was, whoever stole those regions, if you're listening, thank you, because I never would have gotten by that. Oh man. That, that slick, though, was it yeah. you? Was it <laughs> yeah. you that slick? I like what you did. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I'll take credit for it. All right. All right. Now, now, who were your early influences, Julian? Oh man, my early, I mean, as far as entertaining in general, um, I've been an actor even longer than I've really been a professional musician. Oh, okay. So Jim Carrey was actually my hero as a child. And, you know, to this day, he's just someone I looked up to so much um, as far as entertainment goes. But as far as, you know, music and stuff, it's hard not to put my dad up there. Mm-hmm. I've seen him so many times, and he's just the most wonderful, amazing live performer I've really ever seen. Um so that would be number one because he was dad right. and he was also a rock star. So it was twofold. That was good. Um, but other than that, I, I'm a huge, uh, 90s rock fan. So I, I, you know, I loved Chris Cornell. Um, and, uh, I was sad to see that he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, yeah, 90s, 90s rock is probably where, uh, I find my most inspiration other than like the big three being the Beatles, Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. Okay. Yeah, can't, hard to beat those guys. My my exposure to, to the '90s rock scene, uh, Julian, was listening to K Rock here in New York on my my desk at work. First, I listened to Howard in the morning. He was on K Rock then. Oh yeah, this I, was I back, used to listen to Howard on the way to school. Yeah, th- this was back in the lesbian dial a date days. You know, back in, in, in the <laughs> '90s before he became uh, let's quote unquote serious, but. Uh, yeah, that, that's my exposure to 90s uh, rock and roll on K-Rock. I, I would be remiss, uh, Julian, if I didn't ask you how your dad is feeling these days. Oh, he's doing good. Okay. He's, he's doing good. He's got, um, you know, he does have a, a condition where he won't be able to play guitar 
uh, eventually. But as of right now, he's still playing. He's still doing really, really well, and his spirits are at an all-time high. Good. Um, he's definitely handling this um, phase of his life with some some grace, and um, I commend him for that. And you know, he's, he's he's doing really well. Thank you for asking. Great news. Great news. Now, I have to ask you this too, Julian. When did you first hear Frampton Comes Alive? Oh man, um, when did I first hear Frampton Comes Alive? Yeah, the or, album or just I mean, the or how? Yeah, the the, al- the album itself. And when did you come to realize that listening to this, hey, th- this is my father, and he's kicking butt, and he sold a lot of these particular items that I'm holding in yeah, my I hand. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I knew. I I love the album now. Yeah, when I was younger. I was really only listening to what he was coming out with at the time. Okay, if that makes sense. So I yeah. knew, you know, some of his stuff from the you know early 90s and on you know i was born in 1988 so and but no listening to it now it's it's an incredible incredible album and he had such a great catalog built up in a few albums up to that point that were studio albums so it just makes sense that it all really came together for such a great live performance we're speaking with julian frampton tonight on the program i don't know if you're aware julian that most of it was was recorded right here on long island Yes, it was. Yeah. Where, where was it? In, it's um, at the Long Island Arena up in Comac, which is, is a target now, as a matter of fact. It's, it's, uh, it's been demolished and, uh, there's a target sitting on that side of the Comac Arena. So, so, so much know. history that's there. That's kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> that's gone. The, the, the album lives on, but the Long Island Arena is kaput. And, maybe uh, one, maybe one day they'll they'll get rid of the target and put something nice there, like they did with Bethel Woods and and Woodstock. That would be great, or at least one of those plaques like they do in London, uh, or the historic oh, yeah. site. That, that that would be yeah. something. That that's something that we need. That's that's for sure. And also, Peter had uh, a great band with him back in those days. Uh, I don't recall a lot of the guys. One guy I do remember, of course, is Bob Mayo. Got Bob Mayo, and then he had John Saomis. Yeah, on a, drums. A great band. Now, yeah, and Stanley Sheldon on bass. Yeah, it was a really good band at that point. I want to ask you about your latest release, uh, Julian. What's what's that all about? So actually, I've taken a break from my own band since the pandemic has kind of taken taken hold of all of us. Right. One of my uh, band members moved to Nashville. We're all pretty much based here out of L.A. And since no one was playing any shows and everything was being kind of uh, shut down or postponed, I took the opportunity to really focus in on on the recording aspect of engineering and producing and uh, learning different instruments and stuff like that. So actually, my fiance, uh, we get married March 3rd, so it's coming up really close now, um, came out with a song on Friday that I produced for her in our uh, very own little home studio. Uh, it's called You Don't Know You Like I Do, um, and she goes by the name Annie of the Canyon. Um, Annie of the Canyon. It's getting a great response. We do have that with us tonight, Julian. And, Brian, you you ready with that? We're going to listen to it right now, Julian. Here we go. I love it. You're so easy to love Honey, you don't know you like I do You think they are the ones 
Nice, very nice, Julian. Uh, tell right, tell us again. Right. It's Annie of the Canyon. Annie of the Canyon, and the track is called "You Don't Know You Like I Do." And uh, Annie wrote it and sings on it, and I produced it and played uh, played everything that you hear. Wow, so, uh, th- that's great. I was going to ask you if you appear on it, but you played everything. Yeah, I played everything, and I mixed it, and I mastered it, and uh, did the whole kit and caboodle here at home. You're like Paul McCartney. Well, I'm not like Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, I'm there you go. Yeah, that's working hard. Definitely meant as a compliment. Now, is, <laughs> is that available now? Yes, it is. It's available anywhere you stream or can buy music. So Spotify, Amazon, Apple, any of that stuff. Wonderful. We'll, we'll get the word out on that, Julie, and that, that is Thank tremendous. You. And I wanted to congratulate you on your nuptials. Where, where will that be taking place, if you care to tell Thank, us? 
Thanks so much. Yeah, we we found a nice little place in a little venue in South Pasadena, so close to where we are in Los Angeles. And um, yeah, we're just having a small ceremony of um, family and close friends. Nice. Uh, again, I wish you the best with that. Uh, I just I wanted to ask you. With the the pandemic and the way things are shaping up, where do you feel the the direction of the music industry is heading for us right now? Mm, it's a it's a it's an interesting time uh, as far as the pandemic and streaming and uh, the kind of monopoly that all these streaming services have become as far as having ties to record labels and really not spending much money to get artists paid out. Um, so it's really in limbo right now. Um, also, all these concerts and, and, and um, tours have been getting canceled uh, and postponed longer and longer and longer with each new passing wave. So it's a great question, but I honestly, I don't know. I really don't know what to tell you. I hope that things kind of level off and come come back down to where they were before where we get to have normal concerts and normal shows as they were before, but... I don't know if I see that happening again. It's, you know, it's a new world that we're all kind of mm-hmm. just trying to adapt to again. And being a musician right now isn't the best because, you know, we're, we're also reliant on touring and or playing shows around our hometowns. And with things closing and opening and closing and opening, it's also uncertain. So it's a, it's a strange time for sure. Good thoughts. Good thoughts, Julian. Julian Frampton with us tonight. Well, I tell you, Ro- Roger and Pete are on their way over. They, they got a tour set up and they're on their way. Uh, the who? They, they're coming and, they're oh, coming yeah. and yeah, they're, they're going like they're 25 years old, those guys. It's amazing. Yeah. It's almost like they, it's almost like if you're in a classic rock band, you tour twice as much as everybody else. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick funny story, Julian. The last time I saw them was at the Nassau Coliseum over here in Uniondale. And Roger, look at this as a turnaround. Roger threatened to stop the show because the marijuana smoke was hurting his throat. Now, huh. if you can imagine Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend walking out on a on a live show because of marijuana smoke, it, uh, that shows how we're getting old, man. I guess so. <laughs> very, very not rock and roll. I have to yeah. say, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that oh, it was it was wild. It was very funny. Um, what what about your hobbies? What do you enjoy doing, Julian? Oh, I mean, as far as my hobbies these days, I'm actually um, very heavily into NFTs right now, and I'm sure you've heard the term, but are you familiar at all with what they are? No, go ahead. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a difficult uh, thing to explain right off the bat, but one example I could use is uh, the analogy of a museum. Um, so if you go into a museum and you see the Mona Lisa, um, the Mona Lisa is actually there. That's the real one. You can take a picture of it and you can bring it home with you right. and print it out and put it on your wall. But you don't have the Mona Lisa because that's actually the real Mona Lisa that's there in the museum. So that's basically what NFTs are now. It's digital assets and you get to see proof of ownership on something called the blockchain. And the NBA has actually done something called NBA Top Shot. And I have a ton of their moments. Um, which are basically little highlights, um, kind of like, you know, when we were kids and we got packs of cards. That was mm-hmm. something I grew up on. I'm not sure if it was something you grew up on as well. Oh, yeah. Now you kind of get packs of moments, and they're video moments of different highlights 
um, and they have different, you know, serial numbers and different collection numbers as well. So it's a really interesting new kind of wave of uh, digital assets um, that's happening on, on Web3, so to speak, because we were in Web2, now we're Web3. It's really, it's really cool stuff. So that's something that I'm really definitely into now because it's the wave of the future as far as cryptocurrency and all that stuff. Um, and if it's something you're not familiar with, I suggest you do your own research and try to try to get ahead of the game here because if you do get in now, you're still early. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I, I got to get out more often, Julian. That's for sure. <laughs> you, you folks out there, the, the young kids probably heard of that stuff. I got to look look it up. So, some quick favorite uh, stuff coming up, Julian. Favorite movie? Ooh, Forrest Gump. Let's go. Oh, good, great, yeah, great soundtrack there. That's for sure. Great soundtrack. Yeah, really, like. Really good movie, not too heavy, not too light. You got it right in the middle. You got a great actor, great actress running the show. So that's a good movie. For me. And and it runs every gamut of emotion. It, if if you don't cry at the end of Forrest Gump, you hate Santa Claus, and there's a problem with you. And and also shameless plug, Julian Frampton Band has a song called Jenny that you oh. can stream right now anywhere. And it's about Jenny from Forrest Gump, and it's from the point of view of Forrest. That is Robin Wright. Sean Penn's yeah. wife, yeah, oh, Jenny, yeah. we remember her. Uh, favorite oh, yeah. song of all time, Julian? Favorite song of all time? That's a tough one. Um, first one that comes to mind is A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. Oh, boy. There we go. A little back in time, classic, nice. Yeah, that would be probably the first thing that comes to mind. Favorite band to listen to? You mentioned Pink Floyd. You mentioned the Beatles. Give me give me one uh, that you, that you really love. Radiohead. Okay, good one, Radiohead. Yeah, great, great band. Favorite TV show? Favorite TV show? Man, I'm loving these questions right now. Um, <laughs> I was I wasn't expecting this, but I love it. Um, I've watched so many shows, um, but I'd have to say um, probably Breaking Bad or Lost. Okay. Two good ones, definitely good. Yeah, we're heading in the right direction here. Now, <laughs> what what have you got upcoming for us, Julian, that you could tell us about? Right now, I'm still working on some stuff with my fiance, and that's hopefully going to be the plan for the next, you know, foreseeable future until things kind of uh, get back in order with my band and one of my members comes back from Nashville because he's kind of living out there half time for the year now, but. Mm -hmm. Just working, producing, producing my fiance, soon to be wife, and still writing. Um, I'm always writing, and I'm always going to be putting out new music. Fantastic. Well, you keep that up, Julian. And as I said, we all wish you the very best on, on your marriage. May it last forever, and uh, all the best with that. That that's certainly. Thank, thank and, you so much, Bill. I really appreciate. It. I appreciate you playing any song. That means a lot. Thank you so much. That's no problem. We enjoyed it, and I hope the folks out there did as well. It's been a pleasure. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some with us up here in New York. And uh, you stay well, and all the best again with the wedding, Julian. You too. I'm going to go watch the NBA All-Star game now. Have a good night. There you go. <laughs> Take care. That's Julian Frampton, folks. Well, that will just about do it for me tonight. We'll end a little bit early tonight. Is Rob here? Rob's not here. Rob's not here, man. No, that's Dave. Dave's not here. Nope, not here. He's in absentia. Wherever wherever absentia is, folks, that's where Rob is. He's not with us. He may be with you. We don't know. We're going to put an APB out on Rob. Is that what we're going to do, Brian? Yeah, all right. <laughs>
The cops are looking for you, Rob, so, uh, you know, be careful out there. Yeah, see? Well, that'll do it for me again tonight on uh, Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests one more time. Jim Cott and Julian Frampton. Great job by those guys. Of course, my engineer, Brian Graves, for doing a great job tonight. And, of course, you folks for joining us. I'll see you next week. we got Kevin Mitchell from the 86 Mets with us. He'll be with us, uh, and we'll have some fun with him. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.